Well, friends, family, we get to dive into God's Word now, and I am grateful, thankful to be able to do that with you. We are going to need to think together today, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us. We're going to put our proverbial thinking caps on. We're going to ask God to open our eyes, to open our hearts, and we're going to dive into one of the most difficult passages in the Bible today. So with sweaty palms and beating hearts, we're going to ask the Lord's help. And if we can get through this, we can get through any passage of the Bible. So God's going to help us bring clarity, bring revelation, uh, and just help us navigate what this passage means. So let's ask for God's help. Father, we uh, come before you humbly, um, as humble as we can, and we just ask for your help. I thank you for every man, woman, boy, and girl that's in this room. And I ask that you would help you would just help us to understand what you have said. We are about to read your words that you have spoken, and they are meant to be understood and loved. And as Andy brought us through the song, and to be adored, we want to adore your words, the preciousness of a God, you who have spoken to us. And so we don't want to take what you have said lightly. And as I say regularly, our people and myself, we don't need... Um, the wisdom from man. We don't need my wisdom or wit. We need your word. And Holy Spirit, we need this dose of revelation from you to understand what you have revealed to us in your word. So help us. I trust that you're going here. We don't, that you're going to work. We don't want to be unmoved. We want to be changed. Every week, God, I ask when we come together to worship that we would love to worship you. We'd also be changed by worshiping you. Just help us. Help us to understand your word. Help us to have tools to be able to understand your word as we're reading through the week, as we're memorizing, as we're thinking through and wrestling through with discipleship uh, relationships or accountability partners. Help us to understand your word rightly. Give us the tools that we need. We trust that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis 6, verse 1 through 8. We're going to read it all the way through, and then I'm going to give you three tools for your tool belt or for your toolkit when it comes to biblical interpretation. And all three of these tools that we talk about in the beginning are going to be helpful for us as we navigate through each section of, this, uh, of these eight verses. So let's go ahead and read through it, and then we'll learn three awesome, good, hundred-proof doctrine words. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Then I fell him, were on the earth in those days. And so afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, there were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Verse 5, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and in every intention of the hearts, or the thoughts of the heart, was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord." So we have what theologians, the technical term here is we have not, knots to untangle. Okay, No theologian uh, uses technical language like that. That is only me. But we have knots to untangle here. And 
And what I mean is, uh, there are things in here that are difficult at first glance to understand. There's sometimes when we're reading our Bible, and, and when you're reading your Bible through the year, where at, at first glance you're reading a passage and it just seems confusing. It doesn't seem to add up. It seems to, for instance, if you know there's four chairs in this row here, and say there was a fifth facing this way, sometimes you get to a passage and it feels like it just seems out of place. It seems like all the rest of the Bible, Bible verses seem to speak of this, and then this Bible verse is seeming to speak this way. It seems kind of confusing. And so we're going to run into that. If, if you're a Bible reader, you're just going to get to that. You're going to get to Bible verses that just seem difficult to understand. So what I want to do today is give you a few, few tools, like I said, that, that's going to help us today, but I think will help you as you're studying your Bible, hopefully this week, but hopefully for, for like forever. Like these things are not ever going to not be helpful, hopefully. So we're going to talk about three big words that are easy to understand, um, sometimes difficult to apply. Um, and let me back, back step. They're not always easy to understand, but we're going to try to understand them and we're going to try to apply them. So the first big word is perspicuity, the principle of perspicuity. And this is what many people have talked about through the years, and it's been really helpful for many people, and it's just the idea that the Bible interprets the Bible. Uh, the Bible has something that it says in a particular verse, and the best way to interpret the Bible is with the Bible. So if you come across a Bible verse that's difficult to understand, okay, so we'll use the chair illustration again. Say there's 50 verses, and all these verses are facing this way, and all of a sudden you come across a Bible verse that seems to be facing this way. It seems to be saying something different than all these other verses. What we need to do is we need to understand the principle of perspicuity and, and the reality of the Scripture interpreting the Scripture. So here's what we do. We interpret the difficult verse in light of all the verses that are clear. So we interpret the unclear verse through the lenses of all the verses that are clear. So on all the, the, the scriptures say this, but the, the scriptures also say this. So typically in the Bible, if the scriptures say one thing, it, it says a lot about that one thing. And so we can kind of get a, a, kind of a whole view of what the scriptures say. And then in light of everything that's clear about the Bible, we can get help navigating those things that are unclear or those things that are difficult. What we don't want to do is interpret all the clear verses of the Bible through the verse that seems unclear. Okay, so David Koresh was really good at that. Right? If you remember Waco, Texas, uh, cult leaders throughout the generations have been really good at taking one verse, isolated verses, and building their whole ideology, their whole theology from this one verse and discounting everything that the Bible says clearly. So we want to interpret the unclear through that which is clear. So the principle of perspicuity is number one. The second word is eisegesis. Eisegesis. Okay? Some of you may, may have heard of the term before, exegesis. We are fans of here biblical exegesis. What's that, what that means is we want to say what the text says. When we preach a sermon, we want the sermon outline, we want the sermon ideas, we want the sermon big ideas, we, we want it all to come from the text. So the text drives the sermon. So what I want to avoid is getting five ideas in my mind and then going and getting a bunch of verses that go with those five ideas in my mind. What I want to do, and to, for me to be as faithful as I can to the Word, is preach sermons that come from the Scriptures. Okay, So the Scriptures drive a sermon. That's exegesis. We want to expose what is in the text. Eisegesis is what happens when people put things into the text that are not there. 
So we all have backgrounds, church backgrounds. If you grew up in the church, we all have uh, non-church backgrounds, and we have this thing called worldview, and we have what some people call as baggage, okay? You all don't know it, but you probably got some baggage, okay? I got some baggage. We all got some baggage, things that we just kind of walk with, ways that we think that we just picked up along the way. You know, we just grew up, it's just kind of embedded within us, embedded theology, embedded worldview, embedded ideology, all of that, and we bring those things to the Bible. And often we read those things into a Bible verse, and so we put things in the text rather than get things out of the text. Does that make sense? So we're imposing our ideas, our thoughts, our ideas onto a Bible verse, and the Bible verse itself doesn't have those ideas we're imposing upon it. We're missing what's actually there. So instead of us being changed by the word, we are, and it may be very unintentional, we are actually changing the meaning of the text. Does that make sense? So we want to avoid eisegesis, putting things into the text. This is a common error in uh, several particular categories, but when we begin to think about the things of God. So, um, for instance, and this is going to roll up into the next big word we're going to talk about. Um, I'm a father. Let me see a show of hands of all the fathers in here. Got a lot of fathers in here. Okay. Let's see the moms. The mamas in the room. Okay. Let's see the single folks in the room. Okay. Some single folks in here. Now, all single folks come from a mother and a father. We all, at some point, probably will be a mom or a father, okay? So God in the scriptures is portrayed as a father. And so here's what can happen. Well, God is a father. I am a father. Therefore, I know what I am like as a father, so I know what God is like as a father. And we impose what I am like as a father onto God as father, and we miss the distinctions of God as father, because we're imposing what I am like as a father into every Bible verse that we see of, of speaking about God as father. Second idea is God loves and I love. I know what love is because I love my wife and I love my son. Therefore, I know what God's love is like. So we impose our love for our spouse or our son or daughter or for our pet, our favorite dog or cat or friend or whatever it may be and say, well, I know what that's like. That must be what God's love is like. And we miss that God's love is totally other than our love. For instance, there was a time in my life that I did not love my wife and I did love, not love my son because I didn't know them. But there's never been a day that God didn't know you. Even before you were born, God's love is not something that is wavering like ours or it's not something that is here in an instant and gone in the next instance. God, love, God is love and God's love is consistent. It's totally other so when we begin to just impose our ideas of God's love onto him, we miss so much of God's love. Uh, God has wrath. I have wrath. Therefore, I know what God's wrath is like. And the list goes on and on and on. I think you can see what I'm, I'm saying here. Uh, the big word for this is divine impassibility. This is the third tool in the toolkit, impassibility. It's the fact that God's passions are not like our passions. God does not have human passions. So human passions are not in some way an analogy of God's passions or God's emotions. Human emotions are not an analogy of God's emotions. God's emotions are unique to God. So we have to be careful not to throw our ideas of love, wrath, um, anger, um, uh, mercy, and just say, I... I I know what that is, I do that, therefore God is like that. His are totally in and of himself. They're unique and they are different. So these are going to help us 
as we navigate these eight verses, we're going to put these into practice. Okay? And this is going to hopefully be helpful for you in your personal Bible study. The first, well, the first thing we're going to use is perspicuity, verse 1 and 2. When, the man, when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were, were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Okay, there are two options that we have to go with about who the sons of God were. Historically, there's only been two options. Who are these sons of God? Either the sons of God are angels or they're humans. Okay, they're human men. The sons of God are... And, and debate has gone on forever, pretty much, about who the sons of God are. Now, I'll just say out the gate, I don't think we can 100% say, but I think through the principle of perspicuity, I think as we look at the Scripture interpreting the Scripture that we can try to get a grasp on who the sons of God were. Now, the first view, okay, look at verse 2 again. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. The first view, that they were angels, is held by many scholars historically. They look at the giants being in the land in verse 4, as one of the first arguments to the sons of God being angels. Okay? This may sound kind of weird. Um, but they see the giants as being the offspring of angels and women of earth. Okay? So, the daughters of man. And then, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4-10, through 10, there's a verse, and I'm just going to turn there. If you want, you can turn there with me, and then we'll turn right back to Genesis chapter 6. There is a verse in 2 Timothy that leads people to believe that these sons of God were angels. Chapter 2, verse 4-10. through 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. We'll just stop there. This is why people believe that the sons of God could have been angels, because they see the connection between the angels being sinning, and then Noah being spared. So they see the connection of angels sinning, and this is Noah going to be spared here in, in Genesis chapter 6. And so they connect the dots and they say, oh, these sons of man here must be, must be angels. Excuse me, the sons of God here must be angels. And certainly that is a possibility. Again, it, it sounds a little odd. It sounds a little supernatural. It sounds a little... Um, Harry Potterish, I don't know. Um, it sounds kind of out there a little bit. But again, if something sounds out there in the Scriptures, we shouldn't automatically say, well, I don't know, I don't believe in that. Again, we're supernaturalists. We believe God speaks and things happen. So we were okay with the supernatural. We were born natural and we were brought forth supernatural. We've been born again. And everybody in here is a Christian who believe, they believe they've been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. You're a radical supernaturalist. Okay, so we shouldn't automatically assume because it seems kind of odd or different, angels and men, that automatically it just, yeah, that's weird. I, I can't ascribe to that. 
But, so that's the first view, and there's a couple other verses. You can write these down and study these if you want it by yourself at home. I think this could be helpful for you to do. Jude, verse 6 and 7, if you're writing these down. These are verses that, that, that are used kind of as verses to say that these were angels. And 1 Peter, verse 3, or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. So if you want to look at that, you can. The second view is that the, the sons of God are men who are in the line of Seth. Okay, the line of Seth is the instead of the line of Cain, if you remember these bloodlines, Cain sinned against God and there was a bloodline of Cain, and then Seth was born again, and then the bloodline of Christ comes from Seth, Adam and Eve's son Seth. And so this argument says that the sons of God are those men who are born in the line of Seth. Now there are a couple good arguments for this. Uh, the first being in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, and you can write this down. And I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 6 that whoever these sons of God are, look at chapter 6, verse 2, whoever the sons of God are, they took the daughters of man as wives. They married these daughters. So the sons of God marry the daughters of Eve. I mean, excuse me, the daughters of man. Sons of God marrying the daughters of man. There's a marriage taking place. Well, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, Jesus tells a group of religious leaders that angels do not marry, and they're not given in marriage. So as we're using the Bible to interpret the Bible, there's some things that start to come out. Okay, well that, to me, seems really, uh, really convincing. That's why I'm kind of leaning in this direction. Okay, that's why I lean in this direction of believing that these are men in the line of Seth. That angels are not, do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. And in verse 2, the sons of God marry the daughters of man. The second convincing proof to me that these are not angels, that these are humans, human men in the line of Seth, is that verse 5, in verse 5, there is a judgment that God gives on humanity and then in verse 7, that judgment spreads to the land, to animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. Now, if you remember in Genesis 2, okay, remember when Adam and Eve were tempted to sin by the serpent. And then God brings a judgment down, and He brings a judgment down on three people. Okay, one uh, fallen angel, and then one angel, and then two people. And the judgment that God brings against those who sinned against Him was on the serpent, and then on the woman, and then on the man. Remember that? Okay? So a judgment was brought against the ones who committed a crime against God. Here, angels are not mentioned as being judged. In verse 5 and in verse 7 of chapter 6, only humans are judged. And I think that's important. So as we're navigating difficult Problems as you're reading your commentary on the side of your Bible and they're saying different options of what things could be or maybe an interpretation that may be probable or as you're going through the Bible and you've got some head scratchers, it's good to do get online, do a Google search, research passages, what people have said before, wrestle and pray through these things. And I think what comes to the surface in this particular case as we use the tools in our tool belt is most likely, I think, these are men in the line of Seth, in the godly bloodline, in the messianic bloodline, who are marrying daughters of men in the unholy bloodline of Cain. 
And you know what God has always told the people of God about marriage? Don't be unequally yoked. Don't marry, he tells the people of God when they go into the land of Canaan, don't marry any foreign women. They will draw your hearts. He tells this to King Solomon. They will draw your hearts away from me. The New Testament, we're commanded, if we're a Christian, we are to marry a Christian. We are not to marry a non-Christian. This has always been God's way. And so I think what we see here is the sin of those in the line of the Messianic bloodline are marrying those daughters who are in the line of Cain. And God is not pleased. I think that is what the text means. Verse 3, God then tells of judgment. And some have made this a confusing verse. And in fact, even at first glance, uh, re-looking at it this week, I thought, oh, here's another confusing verse. In verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. I used to read that and think, well, God just says that humans will never live past 120 years old. But that's actually not what the text says. What, Jesus, or what, what God is telling him is that the corruption is so thick that my judgment is coming and all that the humans have on this life, all the, all the years that they have to repent, all that they ha- the years that they have left before my judgment comes is 120 years. And in 100, 120 years, sure enough, the judgment came and there was a flood. And so God's patience, even among those who are sinning against him in his bloodline, is seen where he says, you know what? I'm not going to immediately bring judgment. In 120 years, you're going to have judgment upon this whole earth. My judgment will come. In verse 4, then it continues on, and we're going to tackle another difficult, somewhat difficult passage, but we're going to look at the Nephilim, or the the Nephilim. However, however you want to pronounce it. Verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. And these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, as we read this, we need to be careful. Because it's easy, and your Bible version may say giants. Giants were in the land. Okay, Think of giants. These men were men roughly of my stature. And, um, kidding. Uh, there are giants in the land. And what people have said, well, since the sons of God, those must be angels, and you see the connection here, well, that's where the Nephilim ni- ni- came from. And again, that, that may be a possibility, but if you look at the verse, it says this, the Nephilim, or Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, do you see how the language there, it seems to dictate that these Nephilim were not a result of the, the coming together of the two. They were not a product of the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters. They were already present. Okay, They were already present in those days. And so I, I could be wrong about that, but I think that's what this is saying. And then... All the happenings between the sons of God and the daughters of man happened, and they bore children to them, and these were mighty men who were of all men of renown. Now, do some thinking with me. I know this might seem kind of like uh, tedious, but I hope, hopefully it will be helpful. If you remember the line of Cain, and I want you to flip back, and I want you to see how mighty these men were, even in their sinfulness, how, how mighty the men of earth were before the flood. Okay? Chapter 4, verse 17. Kurt kind of brought this to my attention 
when we were going through this a month and a half, two months ago, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son Enosh. Has anybody in here ever built a city? Ever built a house? Anybody in here built a house? I'm kind of building a house right now. No, Dan has built a house. Building a house and building a city is vastly different. Building a city requires administration. It requires the ability to think through infrastructure, even in ancient cities. Where is this particular building going to go? And where is this building going to go? Where is the well of the city going to go? Where is the water source coming in? Where is the water source going out? requires an unbelievable amount of thinking, planning, building, skill, work, effort. And here is the, the men in the line of Cain building cities, and then they invented instruments. So they took the elements of the earth, it says in chapter 4, it says that they were the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe, and also the forger of all instruments of bronze and silver, the men in the land in the line of Cain. Now, if, if you have never seen an instrument before, and then you see the elements of the earth, you find steel, metal, and how do you get from seeing the elements of the earth to, I'm going to heat this up, I'm going to somehow forge it into an instrument, and then I'm going to blow in it with little holes and make an instrument. It, it takes a massive amount of intellect. It takes mighty, mighty men, and even both, even though it doesn't say ladies, but mighty, mighty humans, men and women, to think through the science of all that. There's a massive amount of thought and intricacy that goes into an instrument. You ever try, Dan's, uh, keep throwing out, Dan, Dan's built a few instruments. He's built a few instruments, but he's had several thousand years of people he, of shoulders that he's standing on to be able to learn how to build an instrument. And YouTube. And YouTube. <laughs> they didn't have YouTube, right? They didn't even have YouTube. And so thinking through these things, the, these people were not some less than humans that were running around not being able to figure stuff out. The intellect and the, the ability even of working with, with the hands, with materials of the earth, was pretty remarkable. It was, it was a pretty uh, advanced thinking group. And apparently even there were those of ginormous stature who God had created, humans who were larger, who were able to do massive amount of work, carry a massive amount of material, and it was just simply, simply a mighty group. This may explain a little bit then, being men of renown, a little bit of the problem that we see in verse 15. Because if you're an, an inventor, if you can forge your own way, if you can build cities, if you can create instruments, if you can create culture, if you can build families, if you can navigate the things of earth like water, trees, plant, farming, if you can do all those things, then that's something to be proud about. That's something to be egotistical about. That's something to be beating your chest about. I can. And you look on YouTube and you see the, uh, the videos about uh, what huma humans can do. It's like uh, humans are amazing or something like that. Just YouTube that when you have about 
an hour and a half because 10 minutes is not enough, and watch all the amazing things that humans can do, like jumping on trampolines and doing six flips and landing, uh, riding a bike and doing amazing things, like just amazing abilities of humans. And you know what? These humans externally were doing things of renown. The, the echo of their reputation would go from one community to the next. And yet God is seeing all of this and he makes this declaration about these mighty men of renown, men and women of, of renown. Verse 5, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is a sad state. And this can be the case and is the case of humanity in general today. Humans are amazing. Can do amazing things can think through vac- and can, cr- can find vaccines and have advanced medicine and life expectancies. Do you realize the life expectancy of a human being in the turn of the 20th century, when it went into the 20th century, the, 19, the year 1900, the average male and female didn't live past the age of, uh, past their 40s? You imagine, like, I'm getting up there, I'm way over the hill, I'm 20. You know? How wild that is. Humans can do some amazing things, but God looked and saw these external actions of renown, and He wasn't impressed because He saw the thoughts and the intentions of their heart. And it was only evil continually. You realize that your heart can think? Isn't that weird to think? We think in our brains? But the deepest level of thinking in the human experience doesn't happen in our mind. It happens in our heart, and it's called this thing motive. Why we do what we do. And God saw the motive, and it was only evil continually. And then we get in verse 6, something that's alarming, that can you turn your mind upside down. And this is where we're going to, again, need the help from the rest of the Scriptures. In verse 6, we see this judgment. And this heartbreaking reality, we get into the apparent emotional life of God. In verse 6, it says, And the Lord regretted that He made man on the earth. And it grieved Him to His heart. It grieved Him to His heart. Now, this can cause a problem. And when I was in college, I was a heretic. And I embraced this idea called open theism. And open theism is this false teaching that declares that God only knows some of the future. And it uses verses like this and verses like 1 Samuel 15, which we're going to get into in a second. And it says, look, God, God regrets. And the only, only, thing, only time regret happens in this life is when I regret something. I wish I wouldn't have done it. And the only way I wish I wouldn't have done it is if I didn't know what was coming. Therefore, God, if He has regret and grief, God couldn't have known what was coming. And so the idea that I ascribe to is that God only knows some of the future events. He knows everything that could possibly happen. But He doesn't know exactly what will happen. And friends, that is downright false. It, is, it puts humans in the position of teacher to God. I will teach God what tomorrow holds. But still yet, this verse clearly says it. Is there anything ambiguous about what that, the verse actually says? The verse says that God regretted that He made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. So what we can't do is just take a, a sharpie and just write it out, close our eyes, and just be like, I don't get that. It's not there. 
What does it mean? Well, here's where we get to talk about God's impassibility. God's impassibility. That God's regret is not like man's regret. It is unique to God. Remember we talked about Father, I'm a father, therefore, because my fathering, I know what God is father is like. Okay, I know what love is, therefore I know what God's love is like. Okay, we have all been in a situation where we have regretted something that we have done. Is that true? So what we immediately impose upon this is that experience. We think, well, if that's what God's regret must be like. But God's regret is unique to God. It's different than our regret and grief. Let me try to explain by way of illustration. Actually, let me turn to 1 Samuel 15 and go ahead and turn there because I want you to see this because again, you're going to be in your, I'm telling you, and I want you all, I pray that at some point, I pray that we're all, we, we need to be in the Bible. So study the Bible, read the Bible. And this kind of stuff, it should be helpful for you when you're reading your word. It, it should be helpful. I, I hope it is. In 1 Samuel 15, some of the same language is used. Okay, so we're going to look at three verses in 1 Samuel 15. Verse 10, verse 35, and verse 29. We're going to look at verse 10 and verse 35 first. Verse 10 says this, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. See that? I regret that I made Saul king. And then in verse 35, similarly he says, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. We have these two verses, and then sandwiched in between them is verse 35, or excuse me, is verse 29. Look at verse 29. And also the glory of Israel, speaking of God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not man that he should have regret. Now either the author, Samuel, is just the prophet, is just trying to confuse us like crazy, or he's trying to help us, he's trying to give us a verse that's going to help us not make a major error. When he says even though two times in the verse, or in the chapter, that God regretted, he says to us that he is not a man that he should have regret. So we need to think through this. So there must be a way in which God does regret, but also a way in which he regrets that's different than how man regrets. Or all of this is just some kind of weird, it just doesn't make sense. It all just runs together. There must be a way that God's regret, God's grief, is not like man's grief. It's different. Now let's take through a quick uh, illustration. Pat, one pastor said this. One problem with this view is that it assumes that God could not or would not lament that God would not or could not lament over a state of things that He Himself chose to bring about. Now again, thinking caps on. I don't want to just be in the clouds. You can think through this. Okay, You can do this by God's help. But that assumption, I think, is not true to experience and not true to the Bible. 
More importantly, God's heart is capable of a complex combination of emotions infinitely more remarkable than ours. So his emotions are unique to himself. They're way more complex than ours. He may very well be capable of lamenting over something he chose to bring about. He can lament over something he chose to bring about. And God may be capable of looking back on the very act of bringing something about and lamenting the act in one regard while affirming it as best in another regard. Here's one example. Here's what he says. If I spank my son for blatant disobedience and he runs away from home because I spanked him. So think through that. Spank your son, runs away from home. He's out. I may feel a sense of remorse over the spanking. Not in the sense of I disapprove of what I did, but in the sense that I feel some sorrow that the spanking was necessary and part of the wise way of dealing with my son in this situation and great sorrow that he ran away. If I had to do it over again, I would still spank him. It was the right thing to do, even knowing that one consequence would be alienation for a season. I approve the spanking from one angle, and at the same time, I regret the spanking from another angle. Now, here's what he concludes. If, some, if, if such a combination of emotions is possible for me in my finite decisions... It's not hard for me to imagine that God's infinite mind, the infinite complexity of God's emotional life, would be capable of something similar or even more complex. Now that sounds wordy, but we have to go there because when we read Bible verses, we've got to be faithful in what we can't say. Well, it sounds like God just doesn't, didn't know in that particular instance because here's what we would have to do. we just have to throw out the rest of the Bible. Because over and over again, we see that He knows and declares the end from the beginning that he has a, a, a thread that's woven through the entire Bible. In fact, we see that God's grace was the plan from the beginning, and we'll get that here in just a second. So we, we have to use these tools in our toolkit to rightly understand the Bible and avoid mistakes of saying, well, Genesis 6, God regretted He created humanity. Basically, He just didn't know it would go that bad. See how scary that is? Of a God that doesn't know how things it would, would turn out? And so it's not saying that. There's complexities there. And we need to be wise enough to understand that those things sometimes are just simply things we can't grasp in our finite minds. Verse 7, though, judgment comes down. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man, animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And if it ended there, if there wasn't some other plan that God had that He didn't regret, then things just would have been done right there. We wouldn't be here. Judgment would have come. It would have been in full. And if He didn't have another plan okay, that had been there from the beginning, then all the corruption on earth would have just led to its implosion. Boom. Done. However, he did have a plan. Revelation 13.6 says this, All who dwell on earth worship will worship it, and everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. In Revelation, it tells us that before the foundation of the world, there was a book. 
And the book title was the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. The book before the foundation of the world had a title of a slain Lamb, meaning the plan of all things culminated in the person and work of Jesus. That Jesus, God incarnate, that we're celebrating in Christmas, the plan was for Him to come. The plan was for Him to live a perfect life. The plan was for Him to die a sacrificial death. The plan was for Him to raise from the grave and to rescue sinners to reconcile them to God, and the plan was always to be a heaven, and in that heaven, a lamb who was slain, and in that heaven, a lamb who was slain, who would purchase people who would praise him forever. It was always the plan. And this helps us avoid the mistake of saying, well, God just didn't know what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. And that's why in verse 8, we have this, but Noah... Even though judgment comes down against all humanity, and here in verse 8 we see Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. And you can go ahead and come up. Here's the truth there was corruption, and there was grace to be found. This is the state of humanity today, of our world today. If you're in here, you found grace. You escaped the judgment that's to come. This world is corrupt. Grace is a reality. We have found grace. And the truth is, that if you have not found grace, you can find it. It's available. And you're here hearing about it. The grace of Jesus. And when we find it, we eventually come to realize that grace came for us. What if Christ never came? What if there was no incarnation? What if there wasn't a verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord? We wouldn't exist. And once we find grace, we begin to realize the truth of John 1, 16 and 17. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If Christ had not come, grace would not be here. And in fact, Noah would not have found favor and grace in the eyes of the Lord. The point is that Jesus did come and we have found by God's, by God's grace, grace. So here, we got a lot of information today. Okay, a lot of it. And hopefully, again, a lot of tools for our toolkit as we go study our Bible. Hopefully, these things can be put into place. But the big idea that I don't want you to miss is that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that, through all the complexities of everything we just looked, I want you to look at the simplicity and the deepest complexity of the whole verse, which is verse 8, the idea of grace. And I want you to know that because of Christ, because of this season, you have received grace upon grace, wave upon wave. And the God who created all things didn't make a mistake. He had a plan. And His plan was to rescue and to seek and to save that which was lost, you and I. Let's pray. Father God, thank You. Um, thank You that uh, even through difficulty sometimes, we can understand Your Word. Um, we can navigate Your Word. And we can see the beauty of it. And thank you that Noah found grace. And thank you that we, by your grace, have found it. And the longer we walk with you, the more we realize that you, had, you have chased us down with your love. Your love that is not like our love. It's totally other. It's totally better than our love. I love my son because he's my son. You loved me when I was a sinner and not your son. And you made me your son. Your love is certainly other and different than mine. So Holy Spirit, just lead us. Help us uh, just apply these points and this truth in the way that you see fit. I just trust that you're going to. In Jesus' name, amen.